to Lipto Poo. Okay, that's not the name of our show. <laughs> Actually, episode two is Umami. On this episode, we'll talk about the art and science of the fifth taste, umami. We'll also cover everything from crispy eggs with deliciously gooey yolks to the wonder of wedding rings made out of silicone. So let's go. Welcome to our program. This is the non non Show with Michelle Tam and Henry Fong and the Double O's. Join us as we go behind the scenes and reveal how we make a real food lifestyle fun, sustainable, and non-tastic. We're the food nerds behind Nom Nom Paleo, the award-winning food blog, app, and cookbook. And we're also the parents of two growing boys, Big O. Hello. And Lil Lo. Hello. Hi. Hi. Whatever. And they're the reason we do what we do. So here's the part where we talk about our favorite and tastiest bites of the week. This week, I'm actually reminiscing about a meal I had a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C. And it was a meal we had, Diana Rogers, my best farmer friend, and I had at Blue Duck Tavern in the heart of D.C. And it was a really delicious meal and it was super gluten-free friendly. But my favorite one, and this might be super cliched for someone who eats paleo, but it was a wood oven roasted bone marrow with bacon butter and a pistachio crust. How do you eat that without bread to smear You know, the they did marrow? give us gluten-free bread, but I'm actually totally okay with just using that little spoon that they have and just scooping it up. Into your mouth directly. Into my mouth directly. Yeah, that's how I eat it. Uh, no, but you know, Diana was grossed out by that. She says she can't, <laughs> she can't do that. And I, and I understand, but it actually tastes really good. And I don't think I need the bread. I mean, this is weird for me to say after years of being obsessed with bread. But as Chris Cosentino says, it is God's butter. Yeah, it's so rich <laughs> and decadent. And I have not had the bone marrow at Blue Duck Tavern, but... We should go. We should go to D.C. I want to take the kids. When I was in D.C. just so briefly, I was like, oh, we have to come with the kids and go see the monuments, but not in the dead of summer. (laughs) Yes, definitely not in the dead of summer. I remember walking outside and just being drenched with my own sweat. It was just disgusting. Yeah, I remember. I remember as a seventh grader, we left the airport and as soon as we went outside, it was covered in sweat. It was gross. So back to the bone marrow. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I remember having bone marrow, I think it was at Marlowe in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought just a little bit of flake salt on the bone marrow on the spoon gave it enough texture Mm -hmm. because it was a slight crunch with the flake salt and the rest of it just sort of melted on my tongue. It was super flavorful and I didn't feel like I needed anything with it. I mean, if anything, I think it paired really well with pickles. I think that the acidity of pickles is a really good contrast to the richness of bone marrow. Yum. So what was the favorite thing you ate this week? Uh, It's not something that I ate, maybe more of something I can't wait to drink. So if you're not in California or in New York, you may not have heard of Blue Bottle Coffee. It was started a few years back by James Freeman in a little potting shed in Oakland, California. 
And we first encountered it at a stand in the San Francisco Ferry Building Farmer's Market on Saturdays. It was the farmer's market we went to every weekend when we lived in San Francisco. I remember you would go off and buy all the the week's haul from all the different vendors at the farmer's market. And by the time you got back to find me, I'd still be in line waiting for my coffee. It was that popular. Part of the appeal has been the thought and craft behind the growing, sourcing, roasting, uh, and ultimately the brewing of the coffee at Blue Bottle. We actually have a book on our overflowing bookshelf called The Blue Bottle Craft of Coffee. I don't actually read a lot of cookbooks, but this is a book that I've actually read and I really enjoy it because it goes way into depth about the way coffee is made and how it's made at Blue Bottle. Over the years, it's really become a super popular roaster with locations on both coasts and in some of the best restaurants in the country. And now they're actually opening up a blue bottle in our hometown of Palo Alto, California. That's a a, a huge deal for someone like me who no longer likes to trek all the way up to San Francisco for coffee. And it's also huge because it's going to compete for my business with Phil's Coffee, which is another celebrated California coffee joint that started in San Francisco and is known for its incredible coffee. And actually, Phil's is your favorite coffee, right? Yeah, I love Phil's. I love all their flavors. The people that work there are super nice. They have heavy cream because I like my coffee with heavy cream. You could always mix your coffee, your blue bottle coffee with with ice cream. Except I don't like ice cream. Boo. The main course. 12 years ago or so, I remember a friend's sister invited Michelle and me to actually attend a Friends of the James Beard Foundation dinner down in Southern California. And it was, I think it was four different chefs who were cooking up a menu that focused on umami, the fifth taste. And what was funny about that was we were only invited because I was asked at the time to paint a portrait of the the four chefs and, uh, and it was going to be auctioned off. My friend's sister thought of me because I was probably the only person she knew who did any sort of painting, but I, I certainly was not a, a professional painter by any means. It was just a great way for us to score a ticket to go to this dinner. I know. I was so excited. I was like, we are going to be having dinner with Morimoto. Like He will be cooking this dinner for us. And Morimoto at the time, Chef Morimoto was on the original Iron Chef, the one from Japan. And he was also, I think, the only Japanese Iron Chef that was on the American version of Iron Chef. Is that I think right? so. And so it was pretty interesting for a couple of stargazers like us to actually say, hey, we're going to go to a, a benefit dinner that is being not just attended, but cooked by a really famous chef. It's a big deal yeah. for us. To- oh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But the funny thing also about that was that in painting this painting, they wanted the word umami splashed all over the painting. And at the time, I had no idea what it meant. And ever since then, it's strangely become a huge passion, especially of yours, Michelle. It is my guiding principle in the kitchen. It's like the force for Jedi. Sort of. The meat of the matter of this podcast will be about umami, which is the fifth taste. Historically, there was always four tastes. There was salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. And then in the 90s, they officially recognized a fifth taste, which is umami. So did this umami concept not exist prior to the 1990s? 
No, no, it actually was discovered like in 1908 by this Japanese professor named Kakune Ikeda. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. But he discovered that in 1908 because I think he wanted to know what made dashi broth taste as flavorful as it did. And so dashi broth is basically the basic Japanese stock that is used in everything and flavors everything. And it's made with bonito flakes and kombu, which is a a type of Japanese seaweed. He discovered that there was a compound in the kombu that he called glutamate. And that is kind of the essence of umami. So glutamate as in monosodium glutamate? Yeah, you know, that's actually kind of a fun trivia about Professor Ikeda. So he actually discovered a way to extract the salt of the glutamate or monosodium glutamate from wheat and defatted soybeans. And he started this company that made MSG. He discovered umami and the naturally occurring compounds that... um, And then he decided to process the heck out of it. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of controversy about MSG. A lot of people say that it's not as bad as other people are saying it is. But my whole thing is trying to find foods that are naturally high in umami and, you know, making sure you cook with those ingredients so your food tastes delicious. When we talk about umami as being the fifth taste, Mm -hmm. can you describe a little bit of what it actually tastes like? It comes from this Japanese word that loosely translates to pleasant, savory taste. Or sometimes people say it's just delicious taste. So some people describe it as a meaty taste because it's present in a lot of protein foods. So how does umami actually work? I know nothing about science. I am a huge dummy when it comes to scientific stuff. But my sense is that it must be doing something different to you physiologically to to generate this type of response. So umami is the taste of amino acids or nucleotides, and it plays the role of signaling the presence of proteins, which are essential to the survival of human beings. So, you know, on the surface of the tongue are your taste buds and your taste receptors. And it's through these receptors that the various tastes of sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami are recognized by the body. And apparently when the umami taste receptors come in contact with glutamate or the other nucleotide that transmit umami, this information is relayed to the brain via the vagus nerve. And then the umami taste is recognized by the brain. That went completely over my head, but I will take your word for it. I read that somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I could kind of tell. (laughs) But they said what's really cool is that in more recent research, they found glutamate receptors not just on the tongue, but also in the stomach. And they said that it actually is really interesting that there are these glutamate receptors in the stomach because that suggests that when a piece of food enters your stomach and the glutamate receptors detect the presence of glutamate, this information is then sent to the brain and the brain knows to prepare for the digestion of food. Awesome. That's really evolved. (laughs) There's an even more recent study that was just in the news about these elderly I think they were studying a bunch of elderly Japanese um, individuals, and they found that if they stimulated their glutamate receptors, it actually made them salivate more, and that made them taste more. 
that made food more palatable to them. So they were saying how umami can save your life because if you have lost the taste for food, you can wither away. But with the power of umami, you can live a healthy life. That's funny. I always thought that food made you drool, but it sounds like drool makes you hungry. Well, I think it depends on the type of food, right? So it has to be food that's delicious and that will make you want to eat more of it. So if I'm just walking around drooling, it probably doesn't help. No, I think people would start avoiding you. (laughs) Like they don't already. I think the science of it is fascinating, but I think what's even more fascinating is how it can make your food just taste more delicious. The thing that they've actually learned about ingredients that contain umami is that if you combine them, it's even tastier. So if it's like one plus one equals 50, as opposed to one plus one equals two. So glutamate is naturally present in a lot of foods, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't actually have to sprinkle MSG or anything else to get it on. But what besides bonito flakes and dashi broth can you actually find Lots glutamate? of foods. Like most of people's favorite foods are things that are naturally high in umami. Cured meats like prosciutto and bacon are high in umami. Tomatoes, tomato paste, dried mushrooms. Mushrooms are also high in umami, but dried mushrooms are way higher. And they're saying the whole process of fermenting things and preserving things will actually make a food higher in umami. You know, I think the secret to good food is kind of just balancing all five tastes in a dish. And a lot of American food processors think that if you just put a ton of fat, sugar, salt, and MSG on something, it'll taste delicious. But you have to be, I think, more judicious. Those are the the foods that actually cause a lot of problems. When people say that MSG causes a lot of problems, they're thinking of the processed foods that have super high amounts of MSG and all sorts of other bad stuff. So what is your position on MSG? Well, I know that I grew up in a household where there were bottles of MSG in the kitchen pantry. But me, myself, I would rather use natural sources of umami and have it come from naturally occurring ingredients or foods that have been preserved or fermented in traditional ways. I grew up in the kitchen of a Chinese restaurant. So you may have had bottles of or little canisters of of MSG, but we had barrels, like literally (laughs) just barrels that were as tall as I was that were labeled MSG on the side. And I remember I would go into the back of the kitchen and the cooks back there had these gigantic wok stations and next to the wok stations, there would be separate little containers for salt, sugar, soy sauce, and then something that was crystalline and white that I always assumed was sugar or salt, but was MSG. And so liberal amounts of it were used in my parents' Chinese restaurant. I grew up probably not eating many home-cooked meals that didn't feature a liberal sprinkling of MSG (laughs) in it. And it was all very tasty and delicious, but I'm also not sure that that's the way to go. I've read both sides of the issue. I mean, I know that like Chef David Chang on one side is saying that MSG is perfectly safe and it's delicious. And then there are other folks who are very sensitive 
to free glutamate. And I think they said that the the biggest difference for them was cutting out processed foods that had MSG in it. But those are also processed foods that are more foodstuffs than nutritious foods. Mm -hmm. And is it also because the amount of MSG that you can sprinkle or in some cases pour into the foods that you're cooking just tends to be quantity-wise, a lot more than what you would get from naturally occurring glutamate in ingredients. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. Glutamate is a naturally occurring amino acid that's in a lot of in a lot of foods. The one minus is that a lot of these umami-packed foods are not AIP-friendly. What's AIP? Autoimmune protocol. So a lot of times they don't eat nightshades and tomatoes would be out then especially dried tomatoes and tomato paste are packed with umami. And then I think that if you are on like a low histamine diet, you would have to avoid a lot of the fermented foods. I definitely do think that there are people who may be sensitive to it. And then, you know, in response to that, there are restaurants like Mission Heirloom in Berkeley where they actually have low glutamate foods. And so, you know, everybody can eat there. But I know that a lot of folks are starting to explore umami in their cooking and really make it something that the masses are identifying as a way to boost the flavors in their cooking. And one good example is Chef Gregory Gourdet. Or Gigi. Or Gigi, (laughs) our friend Gigi, who competed and narrowly lost the top spot in Top Chef. He should have totally won. (laughs) I mean, I love May, but... I was team Gigi all the way. We we had the shirts. <laughs> but Gigi has really focused a lot on amping up a lot of these umami-rich ingredients in his cooking. And I think it really showed actually in Top Chef mm-hmm. uh, this past season in Boston where, yes, he went back to Asian flavors repeatedly. But I think part of it was because he was using ingredients like fish sauce or anchovies and really just amping up the flavors and the flavor profiles of foods that otherwise would be more bland or less mouth-filling. Totally agree. I mean, that's why there's a burger chain called Umami Burger. And, And basically, they design their menu around umami and making sure that every bite has umami. I mean, I think sometimes it can be over the top and you can use way too much. And they've actually done studies where they get water with just straight MSG. It tastes disgusting. But I think when they're able to combine it in smart ways, it tastes delicious. So getting down to brass tacks, if we really want to just get practical about it and get in the kitchen, roll up our sleeves and make dishes that really maximize the umami, at your disposal, what do you recommend? So I think you should just make sure that you always have certain things in your pantry and in your fridge. I always have tomato paste. I always have fish sauce. I always have dried mushrooms. Always have dried seaweed. Um, I have coconut aminos. Before I also had, I used to have soy sauce. (laughs) But now that I'm paleo, I have coconut aminos and bacon. So bacon I use as like a condiment. And all of these things add umami. So if all you have is some ground beef. All you have to do is saute some onions, maybe put a little bit of tomato paste. I have magic mushroom powder always on hand. You can sprinkle your meat with a magic mushroom powder, which has dried portini mushrooms. And that will just kick up the flavor of your, what I call garbage stir fry. And it'll be delicious. 
In terms of other dishes, like on my website, you can find my slow cooker Kahlua pig or even my quicker pressure cooker Kahlua pig. And that is a perfect example of using minimal ingredients, but getting the most bang for your buck. And so a lot of people I think are always surprised when I tell them the easiest and most delicious recipe on my site really is slow cooker Kahlua pig because all you have is a pork shoulder, some sea salt, and some bacon. And if you want, you can add some garlic. But that's all you do. You kind of throw it all into your slow cooker and let time do its thing. And it tastes amazing. And everyone's like, wow, I don't understand why it tastes so great. And it's because you've got all those umami forces working together. And my slow cooker cheater pork stew is also very similar. It has tomatoes and a bunch of vegetables I throw in and some pork and some alliums and it all works in synergy. And I like the fact that you don't even have to have fish sauce at the ready to make these dishes. That is true, but I think it makes things taste better. I think people should not be afraid of fish sauce. (laughs) I know it sounds scary or it sounds gross, or sometimes people have even confused it with fish oil, which is not the same thing. But it is just something that people have used for centuries. Back in Italy, they had a fish sauce called garum. And in Asian cultures, they've had fermented fish sauce. And there's a reason. It's for preservation and for deliciousness. So does umami also explain why sometimes my leftover food that's been reheated actually tastes better the next day? It has something to do with it. And this is specifically like braises and stews. Fried foods, I think, taste gross the next day. (laughs) But if you've got like a... So says you. So says me. But say like a beef stew, you'll be able to detect more umami in it the next day because when you reheat food, you're actually kind of breaking down food some more. So you're exposing more of the glutamate to your taste buds. And secondly, Hmm. they were saying that when food is allowed to mellow then the umami doesn't have to compete against a strong, sharp flavor. So everything's kind of mellowed out, and then the umami rises to the top. Ah, no wonder I like leftovers so much. Well, I'm glad someone likes them. (laughs) So there you have it. For more umami-packed recipes, visit nomnompaleo.com slash recipe index. of the week. Okay, Oliver, what's your crush of the week? Cat. My stuffed animal cat. What's her name? Cat. So your stuffed animal cat is also named Cat. Yeah, she has a pink and, and gray shirt. Who made the shirt for her? Well, Auntie Fiona gave me it for my cat. How long have you had Cat? For like five years or something. I don't know, like six. What do you do with Cat? Well, I sleep with her and stuff. Do you think you'll sleep with Cat when you're 40? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so, Bigo, what's your crush of the week this week? This American Life. Ah, you do like those podcasts a lot. Yeah, I mean, like, I like Radiolab, I like This American Life, I like Invisibilia. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about these podcasts? They talk about, like, the most interesting stuff. Sometimes they talk about, like, people escaping death. Sometimes they're just kind of really funny. What's an example of a, a funny one? It's called Natsubi. Um, it's where they talk about like this old Japanese TV show where they took this guy and they told him to take his clothes off and then they put him in an apartment 
and all he could do is win sweepstakes. And that's all he got. That's how he got his clothes and his food, because he really didn't have anything. Oh, so he was naked and hungry? Yeah. And he had to try to win prizes to feed himself and clothe himself? Yeah. And that's why you like it? Well, yeah. So you like podcasts where they show people being sadistic to other people? Don't worry, I won't be a sadistic producer of one of these shows. Oh, good. So, Michelle, what's your crush of the week? Crispy eggs. I thought it was Twitter. <laughs> so your, your crush of the week is Twitter. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Michelle, so, Michelle, what's your crush of the week? Twitter. I know that it's totally on <laughs> You the say decline. that with so much excitement. Twitter. Twitter. I know it makes me not as cool, but I love Twitter. Why does it make you not as cool? Because uh, there are all these reports that Twitter is dying. People loved Twitter when it first came out because it was a really great and easy way to engage with other people. But then it started just being another means of promotion for folks. And so they would just send, you know, automated. They would, yes. Bots would send out stuff. But I still, you know, I still hold my Twitter account and people ask me questions. I'm happy to answer their questions in 140 characters. And I. I love it because I, I feel like you can still get in touch with people who you actually can reach still, out, reach out and touch someone. You can reach out and touch someone just like Andy Cohen. He put out this little thing on Twitter and I guess he was on the tarmac just about to fly to Brazil and he says, I'll answer anybody's questions. And so that's when I was like, oh, I really want to know if he likes chicken breasts or thighs. And really? So, that's why you asked the question. I did. I did. Hmm. And I, I was very curious. When you he, asked him whether he was a breast man or a thigh man. Yes, I was talking about chicken. Mm, sure. I did. I even, <laughs> I was very explicit about that. And now I know he's a breast man. Which is inexcusable. No, I, as, and as I said, if I make a whole chicken, it won't be a problem. Hmm. And so now I will actually work on some chicken breast recipes just for Andy Cohen. Wow. That's how much you like Andy Cohen. I do. I do. So what is your crush of the week? My crush of the week is actually my wedding band. It's actually not the original wedding band that we exchanged, oh, 15 years ago. Holy moly. It's been 15 years since we got married. <laughs> it's actually a brand new <laughs> wedding band uh, that is made of silicone. It's black silicone. It costs 20 bucks. It's made by Kalo. Q-A-L-O. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's awesome. It's silicone. I have one so too. I have two. How do you have two? Well, because I lost one, so I bought two backup. You bought a backup wedding ring? Yes, so I bought two backups. So I've had three in my lifetime. <laughs> well, anyway, I have one and I love it. It is silicone and I think a lot of first responders, like firefighters actually, mm -hmm wear these black flexible silicone rings because not only are they heat resistant, but they don't interfere when you want to grab onto something or really manipulate something with your hands. I love it because I don't have to take off my wedding ring when I go to CrossFit. And even if I'm lifting weights in the garage or practicing pull-ups in the garage, I don't have to take off my ring and remember to put it back on. I don't worry about losing it. Yeah, because you have before. I have before. <laughs> so I guess that's why there's really no sentimental value lost when I took my replacement. Replacement. <laughs> and set it aside because it's a replacement as well. I lost my original wedding ring, I think within 
a month of getting married, something like that. It was yeah. really. It, I, I actually, when he called and told me about it, he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I lost this. And all I was thinking was like, this means I get a free pass. This means <laughs> that I can totally lose mine and it won't be a big deal. And it's not. Now you have three or four separate wedding rings, apparently. Yep. It's also kind of cool looking, which is important for somebody like me who doesn't want to have something really awful looking on their finger. But the black silicone ring actually has gotten a lot more comments than my regular old platinum ring. Uh, people think it's made out of tungsten, like brushed tungsten, or even some kind of exotic wood. Just make sure if you get one to make sure that you size it properly, because I think the first version of the KLO ring that I bought for myself was a little too tight, and it was threatening to cut off circulation a little bit, because it was like <laughs> winding a, a rubber band around my finger. Question of the week. All right, so this week's question of the week, how do you make crispy eggs with yolks that are still liquid and edges that are crisp, golden brown, and frilled? This was a question that actually popped up several times on Instagram when you recently posted a photograph of your crispy eggs online. Well, yeah, it comes up all the time because I think I post crispy eggs up on Instagram several times a week because I have them almost every day. But luckily there's actually a video tutorial on the blog. If you go to nomnompaleo.com and you just look up sunny side salad, I show you how to make them. But basically what I do is I have a small cast iron skillet. I think it's, I think it's our eight inch. No, it's like seven. I don't know what it is, but it's our smaller, <laughs> our smaller cast iron skillet. I get it rip roaring hot. Like I crank up the heat to high. And then when it's hot, I put in like a big dollop of ghee, which, you know, has a really high smoke point. And then I crack, I normally do two eggs at a time. So I'll crack two eggs into a bowl and then I'll carefully pour the eggs into the super hot fat. And then instantly the whites should start like sizzling and popping. And because I like to have the whites completely cooked, I will start using the hot oil to baste the uncooked whites. And you just do that with a spoon? With a spoon. I actually have this this really cool spoon I got from Michael Rollman's site because he has this, he has all these basting spoons. So they're like a little bit offset and so they're perfect. You won't burn yourself. And then I use like a flexible fish spatula when it's done and, and they're done. And I initially saw this recipe on Smitten Kitchen, but... Truth be told, this is how my mom has always made eggs. I think like almost every Cantonese mom makes, you know, they're called hobao down, right? And they're like super crispy whites and then you have a runny yolk. What does hobao dan mean in Cantonese? I don't know. It's, I think it means something like wallet egg or purse egg. With like the little gold coin. Oh, that totally makes sense now. Actually, I don't know. I made that up. Okay. But it makes it it sounds good, right? Yeah. The, <laughs> the the problem I have when I'm making crispy eggs is when I'm trying to baste it with a spoon, mm -hmm. the hot oil keeps splashing up onto my hand. So I'm I'm usually no, wearing like a, an oven mitt or something. Yes, you need and you should totally be having an oven mitt anyway because if you have a cast iron skillet, you will burn your hand off if you grab the handle. So you basically need two oven mitts, one for each. Oven. Oh, you mean for the spoon? Oh, yeah. I, um, that's where it's splashing. Hmm. Or, you know, you just have to be a man. 
Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I'm kind of immune to splattering now, or or it's it's worth it. Like I'm, it's worth it to have those perfect crispy eggs. So that's it for this week. This podcast was recorded and produced at Nom Nom Paleo World Headquarters, also known as the dining room in our house, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, 50 feet from Jeremy Lin's parents' house. The Nom Nom Paleo theme song is by Mark Bartels, with additional music by Big O and Politaire. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, our favorite online destination for wholesome products at wholesale prices. Pay one low membership price and you can shop from over 3,000 healthy, natural products, always 25 to 50% off retail, delivered straight to your door. Right now, if you go to nomnompaleo.com slash thrive, you'll get two months free membership at Thrive Market and an additional 20% off your first order. And in case you're wondering, unless stated otherwise, none of the brands or products mentioned sponsor this podcast. We just talk about the stuff we love. If you like this podcast, we have two favors to ask. First, you can visit us at nomnompaleo.com for show notes, and you can also find hundreds of step-by-step recipes, kitchen tips, snarky writing, and more. We also have an iPad app and a cookbook. More information at nomnompaleo.com. And last but not least, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to get a sense as to what you like. Join us again next week for more Nom Nom Paleo podcasts. Ciao for now.